what we didn't know is that they could also refuse the package or they could not be there to accept the package, in which case the package would come back to us. So we would be sitting in Cliff's apartment and the mailman would come and we'd get 2,000 CD packages back that we'd have to take apart, take the CDs out, and then repackage them again. So we, we were learning a lot day by day as, as we, we started to get some response to our commercial. Hello and welcome to episode number four of The Zach Kuhn Show. My guest today is Razor & Tie co-founder Craig Balsam. Now, if you've ever had any desire to work in the music industry, at some point you probably thought to yourself, you know, I should start a record label. Well, Craig did it. In the early 90s, Craig and his co-founder Cliff Chenfeld quit their jobs as lawyers and started creating compilation CDs in Cliff's apartment. Fast forward to today, Razor and Ty has sold millions of records, worked with some of the most respected acts in music, and created one of the most recognizable indie label brand names. I don't want to give too much of the story away, so let's dive in. Okay, we are recording. Craig, thanks for being on the podcast. Yep, happy to be here. Okay, so how do you almost end up writing a song for the Knicks? You almost wrote the Knicks theme song. How, how did that happen? That's the question you asked me to start this whole thing off? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, since we're sitting here just terribly missing basketball, um, I guess I don't mind answering the question. So, uh, you know, it was the late 80s. Uh, the Knicks, who had been terrible for about 15 years, were starting their resurgence with uh, Mark Jackson, Patrick Ewing, and, and the crew. I think Rick Pitino was the coach. And Cliff and I, Cliff Chenfeld, my business partner uh, and good friend, and I were um, attending games. And we actually had been also consulting with the NBA uh, on music. Uh, we were consulting with them for All-Star uh, weekends. And it hit us that the Knicks needed a theme song, and we got Cliff's cousin Steve and um, – a guy named Grandmaster Flash, you might have heard of, uh, to write the song with us. And we recorded it, demoed it, and just, and we actually, the Knicks were going to actually use it. And just as they were about to use it, the Knicks, the team went into a slide, uh, and they canceled it. And it was kind of a rap-based song. It would have been one of the first team songs that had that kind of rap, rap vibe to it. So how did you, because at the time, you and your soon-to-be uh, co-founder Cliff were lawyers. So were you officially partners at this time? Yeah, at that point, we had just started our company. So it might have been even 1990 um, when we did this song, but we had just started our our business uh, and uh, we were thinking, always trying to figure out things that we could do together to to actually make some money. Uh, and this And this was one of them. Okay, so I did a deep dive last night because I knew we were going to be talking, and I start, I came across these 70s commercials of the the 70s Preservation Society and those fabulous 70s, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the first sort of big project that you guys worked on. The commercials are hilarious. How did you come up with – I mean, this is such a crazy project. You're going from being a lawyer – to licensing music and packaging and taking out a spot on TV. How did you come up with that first project that Razor and Ty worked on? 
So you are digging deep, Zach. You are digging deep, I can tell. Um, yeah, this, this was the first thing that we did. And, you know, when we did it, at the time we decided to start a business together, the one idea that we had, and really we had like, I think we had one idea at the time, was we want, you know, everybody, Americans are really starting to buy CD players. Um, the, the penetration of CD player ownership in the country from the time we started our business, like late 89, uh, through the next couple of years, you know, got very large. It went from like 20% of the households to like 60% of the households. Uh, and what we wanted to do was digitize music from when we were growing up in the 1970s, a decade that we knew very well, um, and present it to America in through our eyes, which was this very kind of kitschy, um, wild look at the 70s. And so we decided to pick a bunch of, you know, I guess you can call them novelty songs, although they were all, you know, top five hits. Um, and we created something called the 70s Preservation Society, and we could put a guy on, on TV who said he was the president of the 70s Preservation Society, and we had him out there telling people that we had to revive the music of the 70s. And that's kind of how we started our business. We sold this compilation. We bought some media time, and all of a sudden we were off and running. We were selling some CDs. And how did you, I mean, you and Cliff were both lawyers, so I'm assuming that helped, but how did you figure out the licensing for the project? We chose the tracks, um, and then we actually went and just wrote letters to everyone who we thought would own, be the owner of the tracks. So we tried to kind of just research who owned the music. Um, sometimes they were major companies. Sometimes they were production companies. Uh, we wanted an Osmond Brothers track. The Osmond owned their own masters. We wrote a letter to the Osmond Brothers. Like we, whoever it was, we reached out to them and that began the process. And then all of a sudden, uh, we got a call from, uh, Columbia Records Special Products Division, uh, and they called us in and we pitched them on the idea. We actually hadn't been, we had stopped wearing suits and ties, but we actually put on our nicest suit and we went and we pitched them on the idea and they agreed to help us do the licensing. And that's how we started our business. So you take out this ad on TV, you package it, you come up with this great commercial. Was it successful right away? Shockingly, uh, it, this particular commercial did well right away. Um, you know, the other convergence uh, that happened, besides for people owning CD players and wanting music digitally, um, was that the cable music, the cable TV industry uh, was quickly changing. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, the number of TV stations uh, grew rapidly. And a lot of these stations didn't have a lot of content. They licensed a lot of their content. Uh, old TV shows, cartoons, like the Cartoon Network, um, game shows. And so they needed advertising. Uh, we were buying remnant advertising, you know, for 1-800 ads, call now type stuff. Uh, and there was a lot of it available. So we were getting relatively low rates, and lucky for us, there were a bunch of people sitting at home watching game shows from the 1970s who wanted to buy 70s music. And that kind of began the process of us starting to see some reaction to our commercials. And at this point, it, I'm assuming it's just you and Cliff, not to get 
too much into the details, but how are you distributing the songs? Like, was it just you guys packaging the CDs or did, did you team up with a distributor? Like, like what did the, what did the uh, process look like? Well, it was Cliff and me. Uh, our first office was in Cliff's apartment on 63rd Avenue, uh, around the corner from the old Ritz venue. Uh, and it was Cliff and I and the cat Carmen, their cat. Uh, and we basically were sitting there figuring out how we could get this music out there. So we did the TV commercials. We hired a telemarketing company to take the 800 calls. We hired a company to do the shipping. Um, and then at that time, when whenever you advertise on TV, you actually had to take also take credit cards and also take COD, basically meaning the UPS man or the post office would go to people's homes with the package they would have to get paid in cash right there and then or a money order for the package, and then that money would find its way back to us through either the Postal Service or UPS. So what we didn't know is that they could also refuse the package or they could not be there to accept the package, in which case the package would come back to us. So we would be sitting in Cliff's apartment, and the mailman would come, and we'd get 2000 CD packages back that we'd have to take apart, take the CDs out, and then repackage them again. So we, we were learning a lot day by day as, as we, we started to get some response to our commercials. And how long before you guys introduced the second product, another compilation disc? Uh, that was number, number two was those funky 70s. Uh, and we did that. Once we started to see some success, we immediately went and started licensing some some additional packages. We did those funky 70s, and right after that, we did Disco Fever, which was a two-CD set, and did quite well. And they were very kind of homemade. You know, my the first uh, cover, uh, my friend, two of my law school friends were on the cover. One of the guys a federal judge now. Um, and th- we, took, we took the photo in my mom's basement with the shag carpeting and the whole thing. You can actually see Cliff in my high school graduation photos in that on that album cover um the second one we we dressed up like you know kind of funky 70s and we uh we actually shot our own cover for that and disco fever uh, my wife jody is featured on the cover so there you go and was it were you quickly profitable it sounds like it sounds like low overhead and and you were selling product well yeah, I, I mean, profitable, that's a, that's a stretch. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, we in, invested our own money using basically whatever we had earned as lawyers and, and some credit cards in generating some credit for ourselves. And so we were able to buy TV time on credit. We were able to buy the CDs from Columbia Records on credit. Uh, and then, you know, when you, when you sell stuff on TV and you're taking credit card orders, you're getting cash pretty quickly. So we were able to kind of somehow make it cash flow in a way that, you know, helped us get, get rolling. I mean, we did, we had our share of, of issues once we started growing, but, you know, we were able to kind of get the business going that way. So you're working out of Cliff's apartment. Do you remember, like, the first full-time employee that you hired or, the, or when you guys, the first time you moved out of Cliff's into maybe an office space? Yeah, we hired, um, we hired a few different 
um, friends, actually, which was probably not the greatest idea ever, to work part-time for us. Uh, and we, you know, hung around Cliff's apartment basically until uh, as long as we possibly could, which was not particularly long, maybe a year, year and a half. And then we went and found ourselves an office at, on Sullivan Street, and that's where we stayed basically uh, until we sold the business in 2019. Okay, so you're doing all these compilations, and well, first of all, you're, you're you're starting out with these compilations, and you had left your lawyer gig to go into the music business, and these compilations are nothing like you know you can't exactly be hanging out backstage with these 70s artists compilations. You know, there's no music being made. Was was that was that satisfying, or, or did that feel like the dream that you were thought of when you were going to go into the music business? Was was that sort of was, was it satisfying to be putting out these records, or did you feel like you had you were excited to move into you know putting out your own original music or original music that you guys were helping other artists put out? Uh, well, let me answer that in in a couple of ways. Um, first, we. We wanted desperately, we loved music. We definitely want, des- desperately wanted to be in the music business. We ultimately wanted to be able to sign talent and do the things that music executives do. Uh, but we also recognized that we didn't have the capital to do that. Um, and we didn't really have the knowledge at that point to do that. We didn't know enough about how the music industry worked. So we were happy to kind of, you know, do what we were doing, make money, keep, stay alive and learn as we started to develop our business. Um, although I will also say that we did a bunch of, we found satisfying creative things while we were doing this. I mean, we, we created the packaging. Um, so we did our own artwork. Basically we, we did the commercials ourselves. We shot them ourselves. We, uh, you know, used professional editor, but we were in the edit rooms making them. Um, and then we marketed them in a very unique way with this seventies preservation society, concept um we ended up having the lava lamp achievement awards which we had a couple of big parties in new york city we brought in uh danny bonaducci and tavares to accept lava lamp achievement awards and you know we really had quite a lot of fun with it we ended up actually being on many national tv shows as kind of 70s gurus uh with the oh, wow. river show we were on cbs this morning so we had a good time doing all of those things as we were developing our business. Um, and actually the next thing that made sense to us was at the time uh, we we knew how to license music. So we started licensing for retail distribution uh, albums. And uh, we also made compilations that we licensed from major labels that we actually put out at retail. So records that we loved when we were younger that were not available yet on CD we started licensing them, putting them out on CD. So we put Graham Parker's records on CD. Um, and ultimately we became, let's call it a mini Rhino Records, where we were doing, you know, serious kind of uh, full career two CD compilations of great artists. Um, and we had retail distribution for it. So we did a Glenn Campbell two CD package. We did Merle Haggard. Uh, we did a bunch of really interesting things. Um, and we it really enjoyed that as well, you know, because that really – let us put things out that we we loved. Right. So when is the first time that you approach an artist or an artist approaches you and says, let's put out, you know, an a, a original new collection of songs? Scott Kempner from the Dell Lords uh, actually reached out to us 
and uh, his actually his lawyer, a guy named Dave Wyckoff, who's still in Nashville. Uh, you may know a good, him. A good friend guy. of mine. Um, yes. Yeah. Awesome guy. So he reached out to us, uh, and he represented Scott and uh, asked us if we were interested in signing him, and we signed Scott. He was the first guy we, that we signed. And what was the process like from putting out original music to compilations? Was it... Did you intuitively at that point sort of know what to do, or did you kind of have to figure out how to put out a new release? No, we had to figure it out. I mean, we basically had to figure everything out. But, you know, as you do more and more, you learn more and more, you meet more more people, and uh, they help you. You know, a lot of people were willing to help us out uh, and help us get some education on, on how to do things. Um, and so, we, you know, when we made Scott's record, well, the one thing we decided is if we're going to sign artists, we weren't going to be A&R guys like, hey, this doesn't sound right, change that, we need a single, like that kind of thing. We decided that the way we were going to be able to sign artists um, and be competitive is if we let them make the records they wanted to make. So that was part of the deal when we started to sign artists is, like, we weren't going to twist their arm to do things that we thought they needed to do. We kind of let them turn in the records they want. Uh, Scott made his record with the guys... Uh, a guy named Lou Whitney who produced it in um, in near St. Louis, I think, in the Ozarks. Um, and they, Lou was a great producer. They made a great record for us. And then we picked a single with Scott, actually, and we hired a radio promoter, and off we went. Okay, so taking a break from the timeline, it goes without saying we're in a crazy time right now, completely unprecedented. And I think it's interesting to see artists deciding about whether they should be putting out albums right now or delaying them. Dua Lipa put her album out last week. Lady Gaga is pushing hers. Pop stars and smaller acts, everyone's going back and forth. And I was curious, I think it probably is a case-by-case for artists, but if, if you were working with artists and sort of advising them about the current situation, how would you think about if this is a good time to put out a record or not? Well, there's a, there's a, couple of things. One is you got to, you know, right now we have no idea how long this is going to go. Um, so, you know, to me, one important question is whether the artist has any intention of touring um, to support the record, because if the artist feels that that's what's going to make their recorded output um, successful and, and garner fans for them, then I think you got to kind of hold off a little bit, maybe, you know, maybe you change the way that, that you're letting people engage with the music and you put a little bit, you know, put a track or two out. Maybe you do some live stuff uh, that you put up on, on YouTube or, or your, your own channel. But, you know, I wouldn't say put a full record out if you're going to tour on the record and you want people to, to be responsive. Um, on the other hand, if this thing continues, people are going to kind of have to put their music out. Um, I think the touring business is going to take a long time to come back. So, you know, so, some like the Strokes put their record out. Um, is that a good idea or a bad idea? I don't know. It's good in that they're getting tons of attention. Um, they're getting a lot of, of, of press because there's not that much to write about. Um, so they're getting, you know, they're getting good notices and, you know, ultimately, they have a fan base. If they ultimately tour on this record, that'll probably be fine for them. Um, so a lot of it depends on, on who the artist is. I mean, Razor and Ty 
when you were founded in the early in the nineties to when you sold in two thousand eighteen, you went through so many technology changes of CDs, digital downloads, streaming, and now we're in like a totally different new technology thing where the live revenue is gone. And, you know, the music industry hates change traditionally, but then always finds a way to make it work. You know, can you see a future with monetizing streaming, maybe even after this? Or, I mean, it's kind of an interesting time where so much of the revenue is completely gone, and I think people are struggling to figure out how to fill it. Is Do you think there's an opportunity in there to capitalize on? Well, look, you know, tragic uh, economic circumstances actually, interestingly, always create opportunities. Um, we started our business in, in a major recession in the late 80s. Uh, the George H.W. Bush, late 80s, early 90s, you know, was a recessionary time. And what happens is, you know, the larger businesses start to just try to deal, manage their own situation. They stay out of the smaller areas, and that creates opportunity for smaller people, smaller companies to get going. Um, so, you know, and you don't also in recessionary times, you don't really need as much capital to get a business going. You just need good ideas. Um, I do feel that no matter what, um, as bad as things get, people do spend money on entertainment. And what I've found since we started our business and, you know, obviously it's gone back way before that and will go on forever is that people need to engage with music. I mean, music is, you know, a game changer for people on many, many levels. It, it, it affects people. Uh, they, they need it in good times and need it in bad times. So there's always opportunity in music. Um, what I worry about most in these times is that the business has worked tremendously to kind of a, a two-pronged way that people can make money, right? Artists make money through streaming, and artists make money through live touring. They make a lot more money once they develop an, an audience if they're touring, and they make lifelong fans. And my concern is that that is going to change dramatically. Um, unless something happens very quickly where people get comfortable being out in public, sitting next to each other, you know, I think the whole live concept uh, is going to change. And I worry about that for artists. I worry that they're not going to be able to earn a living, and as a result, people won't choose to be musical artists. Um, so, Can you picture similar moments that are made live you know, with the audience and the, and the artists in the same room? Can you picture similar moments being captured over live stream? Nope. I, I will say that, and I, I also, you know, I have some involvement in, in live theater as well. And, you know, live, live performances for artists, bands, um, theatrical performances, uh, you know, Broadway musicals, they all require the audience to make the event. If the audience isn't there, you know, it, it isn't the same. Um, and you feel it every night. You go to, a, if you go to a show, uh, an artist show or, or a theatrical show and you go a couple of nights in a row, each night is different. And it's different because the audience makes it different. So I, I definitely don't see that being able to be picked up by these live streams. 
Hey everyone, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Some of you may know that I run an email newsletter called The Nashville Briefing. It comes out three times a week and it really gives you a front row seat to everything happening in our industry. So if you're interested in learning more or subscribing, you can go to nashvillebriefing.com. Okay, back to the show. I can't have you on the phone without asking about Kids Bop. In 2001, you guys decided to make this compilation, which seems kind of fitting due to, due to all the compilations and packaging that you're starting out with. But whose idea is it to have kids record pop songs of the, you know, of the current hits and to package them and, and sell them? So Kids Pop was, uh, it came out of a, of, of a couple of things. Um, first, Cliff and I both had three kids at the time. They were all you know, younger. Uh, and as parents, we saw basically that there wasn't anything between Barney, uh, which was, you know, kind of like pre- very prevalent for our kids. Um, and Cliff and I both found Barney somewhat insipid. Uh, and, and then, you know, kind of the pop music of the time, which, you know, Britney Spears, Eminem, things that were not exactly for little kids, um, but the music was all tuneful. So, you know, our thought was like, well, can we have kids sing these pop songs and make them more appealing for parents and kids? And at the same time, while we were thinking of the, that concept, we were thinking of it primarily because we had the opportunity to buy TV time on children's programming. And that was some, somewhat new when, you know, Nickelodeon, uh, Disney HD, um, a, a bunch of other uh, Cartoon Network, you know, there were a bunch of children's stations that were children's programming all day long, and they had a lot of time available. By the time we started Kids Bop in 2000, um, we had a relatively large in-house media buying business. We were buying our own media, uh, and we were uh, buying mostly TV commercials remnant time, and we were buying them for also outside clients. So we were buying, you know, I don't know, $10, $20 million worth of media a year, um, and we saw this opportunity to buy reasonably inexpensive TV time, and we came up with a bunch of ideas for kids' products. Uh, this was one of them, uh, and obviously it, it took off, did really well. And again, we kind of made the TV commercial was very homemade. We I went to... Cliff and I went to my kids' day camp, summer day camp, and we shot the commercial there with some counselors and some kids. Um, and that's how Kids Bump started. So, Now, I'm curious, with all of these, there's sort of a theme here of the compilations and marketing on TV, and you're taking these niche products and you're marketing them, again, on TV. Today, it's all about taking niche products and, you know, directly targeting on like social media, but at the same time, there's so much more competition, so many eyeballs. Could you, can you, can you do a similar method today or do you think the space is too competitive for between content creators and eyeballs? Well, we could take that apart by saying a couple of things. One is that, you know, the, the media that we were buying and the knowledge that we gained from doing that, uh, can be applied today. We were direct response marketing. I mean, much of the marketing that almost all of the marketing that happens today, except for these broad ads on major networks, 
are really some form of direct response marketing. It's drilling down to the audience that you think would like to buy or engage with your product. And, you know, Facebook does a great job of it, as you know. And, you know, there's a lot more information than we used to have uh, because, you know, people's iPhones have microphones and, you know, the microphones, people can hear what you're talking about and then market to you. Uh, so it is, I mean, there still is direct response marketing. We, you know, what we were selling at that time really isn't anything that anyone would want to buy now because they can make their own compilations. You know, um, I mean, what we were doing is right. we were putting these uh, curated packages together, similar to when you go on Spotify and you listen to their genre-based, um, you know, playlists. I mean, that's basically what we were doing. And, you know, we were selling those to people so that they didn't have to put their own playlist together. I mean, that, at this point, there's no need for that, you know, because it's, it's all done through, through digital streaming. So you guys really became known around this time and into, you know, the, the play later 2000s as, as a pretty major independent rock label. How did you guys start to develop that brand? Yeah, so, I mean, you, you alluded earlier to the fact that there were all these changes in the music industry. I mean, over 30 years that Cliff and I had our business, not only were there format changes, um, but there were tremendous um, swings, ups and downs, uh, that occurred in our business. Uh, there was a lot of consolidation that occurred in our business. So for us to be able to kind of manage to have an independently owned business for 30 years, meant that we had to do a lot of morphing and changing and uh, readjusting our ideas, uh, our business plans, and and that's really kind of uh, how we ran our business for 30 years. So we realized um, once the CD business started to implode uh, after the whole Napster fiasco uh, and the music industry worldwide started to fall apart, um, we realized that the big companies stopped doing some things. Um, and one of the things they stopped doing is chasing radio and music in genres that they didn't feel they could support with sales. Um, and the rock and hard rock business was one of those areas. Uh, they just, you know, the major companies basically turned their backs on rock. And so Cliff and I realized we had an opportunity there. We understood the business um, we had, you know, enough information about what people liked, uh, and we realized that there was we were big enough as an indie, and you know, kind of had enough um, bulk uh, in terms of the the type of uh, size of our company, you know, and staff to actually use that genre uh, to our advantage. So we started signing hard rock acts. We started um, working those to radio. And, you know, within a few years, we were really one of the larger labels on the format. How many people were working for the company at the time? And did you have to sort of build out a different team to, to, to work on Bronco? Or was everyone sort of – was the team that you had able to adjust for the format? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, you know, we – through the years uh, – you know, especially the last 15, 20 years, I mean, our, our staff fluctuated somewhere – uh, for all the different businesses that we had, our company was probably somewhere between 60 and 80 employees, and 
then some, you know, using outside consultants and people in different parts of the country. But um, we, you know, as again, as an indie business, you can't go through lots of hirings and firings. You know, you really try to uh, get good people and have those good people do what, whatever it is that you're doing. So, you know, for the most part, we worked a lot with the people that we had, but then, you know, there's certain times where you need certain expertise and you got to hire people who, who have it. So, you know, in the rock world, we ended up hiring some great radio people um, and some great A&R people, and, we, you know, we had a lot of success in that area. Okay, so how do you guys decide to open up an office in Nashville? Uh, we started a music publishing company, uh, and um, we basically felt like at the time we started that the music publishing company, Nashville was starting to become not just a uh, town where, where there were country writers and country artists. And, you know, people started to flock to Nashville, all kinds of creatives. It was right around when, when Jack White just got there, um, and there were a lot of pop writers in Nashville. There were a lot of rock writers in Nashville. There were you know, great bands who ended up finding their home there. And we thought it would be the right place to really launch our, our publishing business. And, and the publishing business that we ended up having um, was one that was based very heavily out of Nashville. We had most of our writers and most of our staff was there. So one of the things that seems kind of, you know, consistent throughout Razor and Tie is you guys – are incredibly capable of adapting from, you know, these compilation albums to kids bop to, you know, reissuing music to rock to creating a country publishing company to, you know, distributing Broadway albums from Ghostlight and Shikaboom and, you know, and so much else. As an entrepreneur, when you're jumping from, from, you know, thing to thing to thing, how are you thinking about how to adjust maybe the company or your mindset or how, how are you able to make, such fluid adjustments so successfully? Um, well, a couple of things. One is necessity is the mother of invention. So, you know, when, when you need to keep creating to be able to support your uh, your staff and your employees and your overhead, you have to try different things, um, and we always did that. And, and I would also say that Cliff and I both didn't think of ourselves as, in a narrow way um, we always felt like, you know, we liked doing things that could find an audience and we liked the challenge of actually seeking out the audience and getting them to, to like the stuff that, that we were releasing. So we were always willing to try a bunch of different things. And, you know, yeah, some things worked, some things didn't. Um, and we were lucky that as all of this was happening, we still always had the Kids Bump brand. The Kids Bump brand uh, helped us build and grow our business, um, and we worked very hard to continue to to grow that brand as well, which went through its share of ups and downs also once the CD business started to change. Was there a side of what you guys were working on that was closest to your heart in terms of just musical attraction? Um. Yeah, again, I'd say, you know, Cliff and I both, one of the reasons I think we became friends and we bonded is that we liked many, many different types of music. We were not really uh, narrow in the way we looked at music, um, and we engaged in music very broadly. So I, I can't say that, oh, there was one thing or another thing that I felt 
was the most important thing or the most strong thing that we released. Um, you know, I, I, I like most of the stuff that we did. So. so in 2018, you guys decide to sell the company to Concord. How did you guys decide that it was time to, to sell the company to Concord? Um, well, it was actually uh, 2015 that we oh, began the process. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, we completed the sale in 2018. You know, we, we sold a part of the business to Concord in 2015 and then uh, the remainder of it uh, at the end of 2018. And uh, I think that, you know, we we both felt like we had built a solid business um, and there was a lot of interest um, that at that time, not just from Concord, but other companies, and we felt like we needed to entertain the offers and see what was out there, and we ended up finding a very good partner in Concord, and that's what, you know, pushed us over the edge. We felt like, you know, they made they made us a very good offer, and we felt very comfortable having Razor and Tide be a part of their company. And how involved are you guys with the company today at all? Not involved at all. We're we're done. <laughs> retired. So so you so you get out of the music. Well, I, I, I wouldn't say we're retired. I would just say we're <laughs> done with that part of our our lives and and that part of our our business. Right, right, right. Well, I was gonna say so. You, so you get out of the music business, and then now you're producing theater. So was that something you'd always wanted to do? Yeah. Uh, I've always been very engaged in, in live theater, um, you know, through the years, uh, by supporting it, but not really being involved creatively and now, um, being involved creatively and hopefully, you know, once all of this craziness ends, uh, you know, Broadway will be back and live theater will be back and people will want to be in theaters, uh, you know, seeing productions. And how did you get, how did you, you said you were always involved in it, but the first thing that you got, that you got in, on a more serious level, like, like, what did that look like? How did you figure out how to break into that scene? Um, I had kn- I knew a lot of people because we distributed uh, the Ghost Light Chickaboom label for years, which had uh, major Broadway uh, musical cast recordings, original cast recordings. And I also, uh, my wife and I see a lot of theater in New York. So, you know, we just, We've been here a long time. We know a lot of people uh, who are engaged in theater, and that got got me going. Um, and you know, fortunate I was fortunate enough to be a co-producer on Hades Town last year, which which won a Tony musical, and and uh, and what the Constitution means to me. I was a co-producer on, which got a nomination for best play, which was an awesome show that Heidi Schreck wrote. Uh, it really and. Was. Was I was lead producing uh, a Martin McDonough show this year that was supposed to open a week after they shut the theaters called uh, Hangman, uh, and uh, I'll do more. You know, I I, I enjoy it, and uh, we'll probably continue to do it. So we were talking earlier about how economic troubles always is a great time to you know find something creative to do. Maybe not right in this moment, or maybe in this moment. If you were starting a label today, do you think that the pure label model still is feasible in a streaming world? Well, that's a that's a good question. I actually, if if the touring starts to become uh, a problem, 
I mean, I'm hopeful that it won't be. I'm hopeful that this, you know, this virus will, there will be medication and there will be a vaccine and people won't, you know, have this kind of long-term resistance to being in a tight room together seeing live music. But um, if live music starts to become an issue, then I think the traditional models get challenged. If if it doesn't, I, I believe streaming is, is a very, very good uh, long-term model for, Starting a record label, the only issue is it's, it, it changes the capital uh, issue because, you know, it used to be you'd be able to release a CD and generate a large amount of revenue up front for recorded music. Now, you can generate as much, if not more, revenue, but it's a, just a much longer-term flow of revenue. So you have to be able to capitalize your business uh, in order to not, you know, be undercapitalized. Um, and there's a lot of ways that you can do that. One way is, and I think it's happening, is, you know, it, it could cost less money to release music, um, both from a marketing standpoint uh, and from a creation standpoint. Or you can change the way that you release music. I mean, I, I've already seen a real shift in the way people engage with music, and it's much more song-oriented. It's much less album-oriented. Uh, and I think that's going to continue. Okay, last question. How are you spending your time right now as we're all stuck inside? Are you any any uh, productivity tips or, or great pieces of content you're taking in or, or anything to share with, with, with my viewers or listeners? Uh, you know, I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I'm, I'm watching a lot more visual content, uh, catching up on all the uh, – Shows like Ozark. Uh, and, oh, I'm about to start. Uh, Ozark Unorthodox is pretty good, too. I, I enjoyed that. Um, and uh, I, you know, I'm still actually doing a lot of the kind of work that that I did before this happened. I mean, we're, you know, we still own some music rights and we're working on finding some more. Um, and I'm still working on some theatrical projects and working on a, on a film as well. So, a lot of good stuff. Well, I know that you always stay busy, even in times like this, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk and, and tell us a little bit of the story and hope you and your family and everyone stay safe out there. And, again, really appreciate the time. This was, this was great. Zach, thanks a lot. Thanks for, uh, for dialing me up. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, you're in luck because we release new ones every single Tuesday. Next week, we have an incredible interview with another music entrepreneur, John Cohen. John is the founder of Vagrant Records and has signed acts like the 1975, Edward Sharp, Dashboard Confessional, and so many more. Recently, John has started a new company, Big Noise Music, and we talk all about it. There's so much wisdom in this episode, I can't wait for you guys to hear it. The Zach Kuhn Show is mixed by Sam Heyman, and our theme music is created by Justin Johnson. Again, big thank you to Craig Balsam for taking the time to talk with us. I know how busy he keeps his schedule, so I really appreciate it, and it's always a pleasure. Lastly, if you want to keep up with us and everything we're doing, you can follow us on socials, everything at Nashville Briefing, and you can subscribe to our newsletter at nashvillebriefing.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Bye.